Welcome to another edition of American Bankruptcy Institute Podcasts. I'm Sam Giordano, ABI Executive Director. In this declining economic environment, employers increasingly look for ways to cut labor costs. Sometimes downsizing a company's labor force or even mass layoffs are the only way to effectively trim these expenses. However, with any downsizing exercise comes the risk of costly litigation involving allegations ranging from violations of the Warren Act and other federal or state laws, to age discrimination, to breach of contract, to deprivation of vested benefits. Employee issues are a critical and yet overlooked facet of corporate restructuring. Potential mergers, acquisitions, or spinoffs can be jeopardized by improper handling of employee benefits liabilities. While employers can never completely insulate themselves from any and all liabilities stemming from downsizing events, companies can implement certain measures and policies to reduce the risk. With me to discuss the strategies to best avoid the traps for the unwary is one of our area's most prominent labor lawyers, Mark DiBernardo. Mark is a partner in the Washington, D.C. region office of Jackson Lewis, a preeminent labor and employment law firm with more than 630 employment lawyers in 45 offices. He concentrates his practice on employment litigation and counseling, government relations, and workplace drug testing issues, but also represents employers on senior executive personnel actions, labor management relations, and alternative dispute resolution, among other matters. Mark's clients include more than 30 Fortune 200 corporations, federal executive branch agencies, several state and international governments, and nearly 20 national trade associations. He has testified more than 40 times before Congress and various federal state regulatory agencies on employment and labor law issues, and has submitted or participated in 11 amicus briefs to the U.S. Supreme Court, and nearly 30 amicus briefs overall to various courts on behalf of trade associations, business coalitions, and corporate clients. A prolific author and frequent speaker at conferences, he has been quoted regularly in the national press. Mark has a law degree from Georgetown University Law Center. Welcome, Mark, to ABI Podcast. Thank you, Sam. Glad to be here. So let's start with the single most common and costly mistake that uh, you see employers making and implementing layoffs and rifts? Well, you know, the old maxim, uh, no good deed goes unpunished, and that's true in, in this context as well. Severance without releases is going to be the number one mistake that employers make. They make it good faith. Uh, they make it, uh, again, the good deed. Uh, and, and actually, you should never, ever, ever give severance without getting a release in return. Uh, What's required for a um, release is that it not only be knowing and voluntary, but it also uh, that there be a quid pro quo, that the individual gets something that they're not otherwise entitled to. So when employers uh, voluntarily provide severance, you know, trying to ease the transition of laid off workers, Mm -hmm. uh, very often they are hoisting themselves on their own petard because uh, for reasons, number one, they may well be bankrolling litigation. You know, many plaintiffs' lawyers uh, work on contingencies, but many work on hourly, many work uh, on, on a 
combination of the two. Many require a retainer, certainly require a retainer for expenses. So when an employer is giving an employee a lump sum payment going out the door, very often you might be financing the litigation that comes back uh, with uh, the company being the defendant. Uh, second of all, you, you uh, lessen the individual's need uh, to facilitate an amicable departure because you know, uh, that's your leverage in terms of, or one of the things you have in leverage in, t- in terms of making sure uh, that there's peace in the valley and that uh, people will move on. Uh, you provide the severance. You provide it voluntarily. There's a quid pro quo. And, uh, you know, if you're providing that without getting anything in return, then what's the incentive of the employee to uh, sign a release or not to sue, uh, not to extract more money from a company? And obviously, typically, the companies are, are troubled at that time. So the last thing you need is more litigation, uh, more money going to lawyers, uh, more cases that you have to settle or, or uh, fight in legal proceedings. And and then the last thing is that, you know, the need or the perceived need on the part of the employee, um, you know, that's a basis for uh, making sure that you have a settlement. And, you know, you're taking away that need because if you're giving two months, four months, six months, a year or whatever, uh, Europe, it's going to be two years in many cases, right. uh, severance, then, then uh, the European model is, uh, is generally very generous. Then, uh, you know, you really don't have um, uh, the... Um, a basis for people wanting to reach an agreement and um, leave, as I say, in an amicable way. So right. that's the number one mistake, giving severance pay to employees, laid off workers uh, without getting a, a release. Got it. Now, what other common mistakes do you see employers making uh, in these scenarios? Well, I think we need to keep in mind uh, the remaining workforce. And so there's there's very often a focus on those that are being laid off and not enough attention given to uh, the retention of uh, employees that are can continue to run operations. And amongst those concerns you have about um, your existing workforce or retained workforce is morale. And you don't want voluntary attrition of the people that you need the most. So you have all this attention being being paid on the people that are going out the door, uh, not enough that are staying inside. And very often you can lose employees that you have no intention of losing and that you need. Uh, second thing, and this kind of fits into that category of you know uh, morale being harmed, is uh, very often uh, companies, they don't do their homework up front. Uh, and what happens as a result is they have staggered layoffs. So, you know, they lay off 40 employees in February and another 80 in, in March and then uh, 60 in, in uh, May. And, boy, that's terrible for morale. Uh, what you really want to do is make your decisions up front, uh, do your homework, um, do your statistical analysis, make sure that there's not going to be a disparate impact on any protected class, uh, make sure that you're not going to be vulnerable legally, and and also you know run the numbers in terms of um, you know what your needs are in what is a um, troubled economy uh, in terms of retention and what's going to make the most sense in terms of of uh, those that leave. Now you know what I'd like to do is you you spend some extra time up front, you plan this out, you do your analysis. Uh, and then as a consequence, when you announce the layoffs, it's all one uh, incident. It, it occurs at once, and those that uh, are not laid off, uh, you give them reason to breathe a sigh of relief because they understand that, yes, 
this was a one-time only. We don't anticipate any further layoffs. Uh, you, you know, you've made the cut, and you know, you kind of circle the wagons with the employees that are left, and you know, they get reassurances that you know what's coming next. You know, what's what's next Monday going to bring? Next next month going to bring? And uh, you know, you lose a lot of credibility when there's staggered layoffs. It doesn't look like you know what you're doing. It doesn't look like you have a plan for uh, turning around the company or for recovery. And so that's that's a big mistake as well. Uh, not being aware of the law, another mistake. You know, there are a lot of state and local ordinances, uh, particularly in the Rust Belt. And so, uh, complying with federal law, one thing. Uh, complying with state and local law on, on things like uh, advance notice, uh, that's another. And um, you know, that's that's something that employers need to be sophisticated about, and uh, you know, practice preventative medicine because uh, you know a few changes up front uh, would change some uh, uh, lessen the possibility of legal vulnerability uh, on a much bigger basis uh, come later. And you know, certainly the responsibilities in terms of releases. You know, there's no sense getting a release if it's going to be invalidated. And uh, you know, that's the worst case scenario is that you pay out. You know, your end of the quid pro quo, you pay that out to the employee, and the release has no validity because of technicalities or failure to comply with um, federal, state, or local statutes in that regard. And then uh, what I'd also say is that another common problem that we see, of course, we're a very large management law firm in this economy, what you see is employers negotiating separate deals, individual deals. So, you know, that's part of what I meant when I said do your homework is you decide on the plan, you stick to the plan. Once you have inconsistency, uh, then that's an invitation to litigation. And you really can't have inconsistency in terms of application. Once you start negotiating deals, it sets uh, uh, individual deals, it sets a very negative precedent, and it certainly makes you vulnerable. Got it. Is there anything... uh particular to the current economic climate that makes layoffs a greater legal challenge? Oh, sure. Uh, the biggest change is that people aren't as readily reemployable. So uh, I remember in the heydays in the Silicon Valley, when somebody got laid off, uh, they never cared about severance. You know, they, what they cared about was getting a positive reference and that, you know, their reputation wouldn't be uh, hurt by you saying that oh, we fired Joe Jones because uh, because he embezzled. You know, all they cared about was getting leaving with a clean slate. And the reason was, you know, if you had a positive reference, you were reemployable in one week, and if you didn't have a positive reference, it would take you three weeks. And you know, that's not the climate that we're in. What the economic climate that we're in right now, uh, because the economy is bad, because there's so many layoffs, because there has not been very much job generation in the private sector. Um, people are not re- readily reemployable, so they're sitting at home and uh, they're fretting. And even if it's an amicable departure, you know, they're if you don't have release, they're sitting home, and you know, the neighbors, cousins, brothers, um, you know, real estate lawyers says, "Gee, you know, you ought to sue the SOBs." And sooner or later, things start festering, and they decide, "Yeah, you know, let's sue. Let's see what we can get out of this." And there's a lot of mentality to litigation in America. We, we know that. So uh, New York State, they have a uh, lottery like many states, and one of their mottos is, uh, I thought it was very clever, um, advertising uh, uh, um, campaign. 
in the advertising campaign in New York State for the lottery, they say uh, you can't win if you don't play. And uh, that's certainly the mentality that many plaintiffs have in terms of suing the employers. You say, well, gee, why not? They laid me off. I was loyal to the company. I worked X number of years there. Now I'm sitting at home. I can't get another job. You know, let me file this suit. Let's let's see what I can extract from the company. Any kind of money. Very often they get the plaintiff's lawyer who's, who will work on a contingency, 33%, 40%. And so if you don't have a release, then you're not protected against those types of lawsuits. And, you know, this economy is bad. I think we all know that. But it's particularly bad in terms of those that are seeking reemployment, and therefore um, a release becomes much more important for the, from the employer's standpoint. Right. Now, you mentioned uh, earlier the uh, importance of uh, awareness and understanding of the various laws uh, relevant in this area, uh, not only federal, but but state and even local. In the restructuring area, one statute that uh, is, is very important is the WARN Act. Can you uh, talk specifically about that statute's application to layoffs? Uh, sure. You know, that was commonly known as the plant closings bill, but it applies to much more than plant closings. And uh, and it also applies to mass layoffs. So mass layoffs has a you know definition isn't necessarily what many people consider to be mass layoffs. So WARN Act stands for the Worker Adjustment Retraining and Notification Act, and it applies to companies with 100 or more employees. And uh, what it requires basically is 60 days advance notice of layoffs. Well, you know this can be problematical. Certain settings. Um, you know, that's going to be a tough situation. If you're in a crisis situation, you know, waiting 60 days, um, the economic hemorrhaging can continue. If you're in a situation where um, there's a great deal of hostility or um, animus, or, you know, sometimes in uh, union settings or, um, or where there's been a lot of contentiousness between management and labor, even in a non-union setting, you know, you have the risk of, of fridge and stealing from the company, and you have the, the risk of uh, destruction of company property. Um, you know, let me say, in a, in a very negative setting, uh, you can see the possibility how much work really are you going to get in those 60 days, or or sometimes more. Um, and, uh, you know, it is not a, uh, you know, sometimes employees understand, recognize, they know what's going on, they know the company has tried its best. Uh, they know there's been good faith on the part of management, and sometimes not. Sometimes there's suspicion or uh, hostility or, or vindictiveness. And so yeah, um, it can be a tough situation to um, have to give that much advance notice. And, um, you know, very often uh, you have plaintiff's lawyers getting lining up and getting involved, and uh, you have uh, filings for um, to try to retain the jobs and try to get injunctive relief and against a plan closing. Uh, you have mobilization of, um, you know, community leaders or church leaders or activists um, picketing. Uh, you can hurt the company in, uh, in terms of the public relations aspect and, and news. So 
you know, that can be a tough situation. I think we're all sympathetic to the idea of workers being laid off, getting re-entry into the workforce, uh, transitioning in terms of their career, uh, becoming re-employable. There's many, many things employers can and do do routinely to assist in that process. And certainly that's part of what typically goes into a severance agreement and release of all claims is things that help in terms of transition. But this idea that, you know, sometimes what's best um, is a clean divorce and one that occurs where, um, you know, if you need the relief, um, you get the relief now, you don't run the risk and and the uh, potential harm of uh, maintaining a workforce and a workplace that, that is uh, has significant disputes. WARN Act applies to... Um, as I mentioned, companies with 100 or more employees, uh, plant closing, well, we know what that is, but a, a mass layoff would be 33% of the workforce and 50 employees. So at least 33% of the workforce, 33% or more, and at least 50 or more employees are being laid off within a 30-day period. Or for very, very large companies, it could be just 500 employees. I don't care how large you are. If you lay off five, 500 employees, that's considered a mass layoff. Uh, plant closing is a permanent or temporary shutdown of a single site of employment. If the shutdown results in loss of 50 or more uh, jobs. So, um, WARN Act, uh, employers... Uh, many, many ramifications to it, many subtleties to it. There's been a lot of litigation in this regard. There's also state and local WARN Acts. Uh, they don't go less than the WARN Act. They go more, sometimes requiring 90, 120 days, some 15 to 20 states that uh, have their own versions of this. Uh, it does get complicated, and employers can uh, easily and in good faith run a follow law unless they... Um, have the appropriate uh, counsel on how to proceed. Uh, I do want to mention, Sam, as well, the Older Worker Benefit Protection Act, because this is an area where, you know, you asked before about common employer mistakes. Here's one that's very, very common. Um, you know, from a management employment standpoint, um, age discrimination is very tough to defend against. Uh, that's because, uh, well, for many reasons. You know, everybody is, uh, juries are disproportionately older Americans. Um, Everybody expects to be older if they're not older now. <laughs> uh, everybody's got, you know, uh, mothers, fathers, uh, aunts and uncles, and grandparents, and so there's sympathy for uh, the older workers. And age discrimination is, is uh, least likely to settle and uh, most likely to uh, result in larger awards in terms of uh, the standard protected classes in which employees sue on. And in layoffs and mass layoffs, reductions in force, plant closings, very often uh, it's going to have a disparate impact in terms of older Americans. And this is really something that employers, when they run the statistical data, when they do their homework up front, they have to make sure that there is a business justification for all of the layoffs and uh, that there isn't a statistical disparity affecting older workers. By older workers, uh, I mean workers that are 40 and over. They're covered by the Age Discrimination Employment Act. They're also covered by the Older Worker Benefit Protection Act. The Older Worker Benefit Protection Act, among other things, has three provisions very specific on this, which employers need to be aware of. One is that uh, employees have to be given 21 days or more to consider a release. 
and they have to affirmatively be told that they have 21 days to consider the release. And they can waive that right, uh, but they have to, individual employees being laid off have to be told uh, uh, in writing that they have 21 days to consider and that they have seven days to rescind. That seven days to rescind is not waivable. So even after you have an agreement, that's why we talk about the effective date of uh, settlement agreements or severance agreements and releases of all claims, because that won't be until, for older workers, those 40 and older, seven days after uh, the company receives an executed copy of the agreement. Uh, so uh, common mistake employers would be paying out before that period, and then you can have uh, a revocation uh, by right by the individual. They will have already gotten the money. Uh, good luck getting that back. Mm-hmm. So uh, the second part of the Older Worker Benefit Protection Act, uh, well, two parts. One is the, the notice. Two is the revocation right. And by the way, if it's a, if it's more than one employee being uh, laid off, that 21 days goes up to 45 days to consider. The third of the three elements on the Older Worker Benefit Protection Act is employers have to advise the employee in writing, in writing, that they have a right to and should consider consulting with legal counsel. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's a very big issue. Um, uh, that is an invitation to some contentiousness. Um, you know, that makes it tough. Now, let me say, as I referred to earlier, sometimes employees are very aware of what's going on. Um, they're not suspicious of the employer. They know what a bad economy is. They know when, uh, you know, it's a widget factory used to sell, you know, move a thousand widgets a, a week and now you're, now you're moving 400 widgets a week. It's not lost on them. Um, uh, they know what a bad economy is. Right. Uh, and they know the company is hurting and they know that the company would rather be growing, uh, not, not declining, but uh, so you may not have that type of contentiousness. You you, you may have uh, a recognition that the employer has acted in good faith, and you have may have a recognition that that reductions in force are necessary, uh, and an appreciation for what the employer does as part of the package going out the, the door. Because there are many things that employers can do, uh, both before there's reduction in force and and during the reduction in force to sort of ease that trans- transition. There are alternatives. mentioned in uh, conjunction with the older worker benefit law, the uh, idea of business justification. Uh, What role does business justification play in a larger sense in reductions in force? Yeah, seminal role. You know, I mean, that is essentially as defense attorneys, as defending and the actions by employers, we, we don't handle plaintiffs. Uh, we have 630 lawyers. We we represent management. I mean, basically, that's the card that we have to play, which is 
this was a business necessity. Um, we needed to eliminate this plant, uh, this product line, this division, um, whatever it is. You know, you can you can look at it in terms of different disciplines within the company. Uh, but you know, even under the National Labor Relations Act, there's a seminal case is uh, Plymouth Shoe, and that gives employers an absolute right to close a plant. And if in the judgment of the employer, it's necessary to close a plant, uh, you know, the, the NLRB can't force the company to maintain operations and, and keep a plant open. It's never happened, never will happen. Uh, I don't know, actually, the NLRB is changing quite a bit. So maybe, <laughs> maybe it could happen coming right. up. But, but, uh, but uh, it hasn't happened in the past. And so employers have that, you know, business justification is sort of the ultimate defense. And we ought to keep that in mind whenever, you know, I understand the ABI members are very often called in to help turn around a company that's financially troubled, that's uh, going through reorganization and, and a bankruptcy process. And, you know, so, you know, the, the, the precedent is set. I mean, it's there. I mean, we're not doing a reorganization for fun. We're doing a reorganization because we have to. But we need to cross the T's, dot the I's, have all of the paperwork, show that this was necessary, show that what was the basis for doing these layoffs. And, you know, where company, the reason why employers need to do statistical analysis up front is to show that there's not a disparate impact. So, you you don't want to have any protected class, uh, race, gender, right. nationality, um, age, uh, etc. You're going to be impacted disproportionately in terms of layoffs. You really need to have the numbers run in a different way. And there's there's different ways you can run those numbers. You know you can run it by um, job classifications or by division or department or or you know you can uh, you know it's, there's no hard and fast definition. And so that's important that you look at it and consider what the options are in terms of the statistical analysis to come up with uh, the justification that's going to uh, be the most compelling. That's the homework you talked about. Sure. Exactly. Okay. What about a situation where the employer faces the likelihood of uh, hostility or even vindictiveness by a laid off employee or group of employees. I'm thinking particularly of, uh, you know, data security breaches by employees who want to get even, you know, with the company that's uh, downsized them. Sure. You know, that's um, no difference. I mean, this is true in terms of the termination of an individual employee who's in a um, sensitive position, either a position where they have access electronically to information that's proprietary or they may have access, you know, being the accounting department or mm-hmm. where either uh, or have access to customer databases, those types of things. Right. So there's all sorts of confidential positions where uh, if you have an inclination to believe that the termination is going to be contentious, if this person is feisty, there's been issues in the past, um, you know, there's there's uh, an indicate you know, the person is, uh, you know, whatever, moody or, or uh, has been threatening or, uh, you know, we, we know what troublesome employees are and uh, we know how this can occur. And and we as management lawyers have seen it many, many times. Well, you take precautionary steps. One of the things is um, in extreme circumstances, you may want more security uh, at a work site, 
Um, you may, um, if there's a discharged employee, you may want to uh, immediately um, terminate their castle keys or, you know, uh, take steps to deny entry to the work site to them, mm-hmm. including people at the gates or if it's a professional environment, the, you know, receptionists make sure they know that Joe Jones, Sally Smith uh, are not to be granted entrance. If they do come to the workplace, immediately call this person or that person or that person. Uh, um, we have had situations where we've had to call outside security. Um, and for a number of days had them present at the work site. Uh, very often, uh, when you have a termination, you may want to, um, well, first of all, you should never do a termination one-on-one. Uh, Sam, if you were going to fire me, you never call me in your office and, and, and confront me one-on-one. Right. You want a second management person there. So otherwise it becomes a he said, he said, mm-hmm. he said, she said, whatever. And, you know, you want to be able to talk about what happened at the meeting and what the response was and, you know, whether there were threats. And, and frankly, there can be, um, you know, physical dangers as well to um, firing somebody. And, and, uh, and they, may, they may take it out on this one individual person who's the messenger. Mm-hmm. or hold them responsible. You're the one, you're in HR, you cause this to occur. So you never want to implement a layoff one-on-one. You want to have another management representative there. You may want to deny access, you know, cancel out the castle key, deny computer access. Um, you know, you want to make sure that uh, if somebody has a laptop that uh, includes company information or data, this is particularly true, of course, in professional settings, law firms, uh, many of your members uh, would be in this situation. Um, you, you want return of that um, uh, laptop or any disks or, you, you, you know, deny entry. You, know, you change their passcode to the computer so they can't go on and mm-hmm. erase files or copy files, mm-hmm. uh, copy databases, like I say, customer or contact databases that would be valuable to somebody else. You take these sort of precautionary steps. And, and also what you want is, you know, you may want somebody from the company, maybe it's security, maybe it's HR, you know, if if uh, you're firing a person at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, you know, they go from your office to their desk and, you know, somebody's with them to make sure that what right. they take when they leave is their own personal property and not any company property, and they get escorted to the door. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's the unfortunate reality of things in, in certain contentious situations. Um, you know, this, is, this more applies to a termination for cause, but it can exist in a reduction in force situation as well. Right. How about, um, we, we talked a lot about uh, line employees and uh, people uh, down the, the chain, but um, in a restructuring situation, uh, we're often talking about uh, senior executives, management. Are there special considerations regarding senior executives uh, that are being uh, uh, downsized? Yeah, absolutely. There, you know, there's where there's more at stake, and uh, they would make more compelling plaintiffs. And so, uh, typically, the senior executives are going to be uh, more affluent, more sophisticated, better educated, uh, more articulate. And they would make you know better witnesses, or uh, they'd be better on the stand, better during depositions. Uh, they're typically senior executives are used to dealing with law firms and lawyers. Uh, they have access to the good lawyers. They have the wherewithal to pay for good lawyers. 
and there's a lot more at stake. And typically the issue with senior executives is not going to be compensation, uh, but it's going to be um, stock options and, you know, uh, percentage of the company that's owned. And, uh, you know, this can get into very, very serious money and, you know, uh, entitlements in that regard and they get into a very messy fight. So um, senior executives, I mean, this is one of the things, you know, we talked before a couple of times about homework. <laughs> you know, one of the things that, employers should consider is, hey, you know, think now about what may happen later. And if you think now about what may happen later, I, I refer to it as pre- preventative medicine before. You know, employment agreements uh, and, you know, non-compete agreements and other restrictive covenants, uh, non-solicitation of employees, non-disparagement, uh, non-solicitation of clients, um, you know, all of the confidentiality agreements, all of these things that uh, are, are particularly appropriate for senior executives. You know, the rank-and-file employees, gee, I don't know, uh, you have a 1,000 employees. If your 950th employee goes to work for a competitor, I mean, how, how dangerous mm-hmm. is that? Not too dangerous. If you've got a 1,000 employees and your number five employee goes to work for a direct competitor, yeah, that could be very harmful to you. And so... All of these types of things, non-compete, non-solicitation of employees, non-solicitation of clients, confidentiality agreements, non-disparagement, all these types of restrictive covenants, uh, you know, first of all, it certainly should be part of uh, what, you know, your members and employers consider on the, uh, for employees coming in, especially senior executives coming in, because it's a very easy sell at that time. You know, at the time people are getting married, they're not right. thinking about divorce. Right. They're thinking how great it is. And so, you know, everybody, gee, we'll sign on anything. And so that's a great time to get people to do your homework, to have these documents in place, to make sure the company is protected, to make sure the assets of the company or the law firm are protected, uh, to make sure that we're not vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, people don't think about that. They, you know, they know they need a lawyer when there's, when there's a, a messy separation from employment, but they don't think of having a lawyer on the front end to prevent this type of thing from happening later. And, yes, yeah, senior executives can make very formidable plaintiffs. And as I mentioned, there's a lot more at stake. Right. And so typically it takes more. Now, let me say, uh, post-Enron, as we all know, um, uh, you know, the Internal uh, Revenue Service has looked at, you know, in terms of the agreements uh, and the benefits that are provided to senior executives, um, you know, you have to be very careful in that regard that uh, they're not going to be disproportionate right. or to the disadvantage of, of uh, the rank and file in terms of um, dissolution of a company. Right. Let me ask uh, one final question about uh, law firms specifically. Uh, hardly a week or month goes by without some uh, new uh, announcement uh, about downsizing, even in some of the most prominent national law firms uh, in the country. What are the uh, specific uh, issues uh, relevant to law firms and other professional organizations that people need to be aware of? Sure. Well, uh, I mean, lawyers make terrible defendants and they make terrible defendants because there's you know it, you know it's not mom pot kettle in in rural montana and say gee we just didn't know <laughs> there's an assumption that lawyers will know the law and will certainly should know the law and um, should have been very aware so so any non-compliance with any statutory requirement is not going to be um 
looked on favorably by arbitrators, judges, juries, whatever. And and of course, lawyers uh, by right are by nature are advocates, and and you know they feel strongly. Well, no, no, no. But you know what? You need the documentation. You know, as a defense lawyer in employment law, you know we say the three best defenses to. Um, charges are paper, paper, and paper, and you know that's what you need. You need the documentation. You need the documentation in terms of the agreements, the policies, um, you know, the releases, um, the acknowledgments that somebody's had training. You know, let's say in the harassment area, you have manager and supervisor training, so people acknowledge, yes, I've been through the training. So you know, the bottom line is that we did everything that a reasonable, responsible employer could do to prevent this from happening. Also, in terms of progressive discipline, paper plays a big part of that as well. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we talked before about business justification. You know, you really have to show that this was, you know, why are we firing Joe Jones? We're firing Joe Jones because he did not do as well as um, Sally Smith and Bob Brown and the other partners at his level. We can show with objective criteria. We have performance evaluations. Yeah, that's, again, paper, documentation, mm-hmm. documentation. Uh, you know, law firms, um, uh, you know, very often it's the, uh, the, you know, the shoemaker's kids going without shoes. You right. know, they, they advise their, their clients on how to do all these things, and they're very intent on keeping the paper and doing performance evaluations and making sure that uh, everything's in order, but they're not doing it in their own house. And I have to tell you, uh, performance value, uh, evaluations, particularly when you come to uh, terminations for cause, uh, terminations that are performance-based, and you know, one of the criteria in uh, mass layoffs and reductions in force is performance. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe seniority, it may be you know based on location or product line or service line, uh, but also performance is certainly uh, an appropriate factor in this, and. Uh, you know, you need to be able to show that objectively speaking, you know, 10 out of 10 people, if they looked at this evaluation versus that evaluation, they would know that this performance was um, inferior. Right. So, yeah, lawyer, lawyers uh, really held to a much higher standard. And, uh, uh, you know, I think that partnership agreements are a big part of this. Uh, if If law firms don't have partnership agreements that spell out uh, the conditions under which uh, somebody can be separated for employment, uh, and uh, then they're really at risk. Right, right. Good, uh, good advice, uh, Mark. Obviously, you and your firm, uh, Jackson Lewis, have a great deal of expertise in this area. If our members need your advice, how can they best reach you? Uh, well, sure. My name is Mark D. Bernardo. I'm at, at Jackson Lewis. Uh, Jackson Lewis, uh, L-E-W-I-S. You know, you can reach us through our website, but, uh, you know, I'll give my phone number now. Uh, 703. Anybody who's, who's sat through this whole thing gotten to the end, I guess they deserve to have uh, my direct dial. 703-483-8334. 703-483-8334. Or my email is... Uh, Deberna, which is the first seven letters of my last name, D-E-B-E-R-N-A, and then M is in Mark, at Jackson Lewis, which is L-E-W-I-S dot com. Great. Mark does answer his own phone. I, I can verify that. <laughs> I've, I've got uh, many more questions, uh, Mark, but we're uh, out of time uh, for today. We very much appreciate you being uh, with us, sharing 
your uh, insights uh, on this uh, critical aspect of uh, business restructuring. Thanks, Mark. Thank you, Sam. And uh, we thank our audience for listening. There are more than 80 podcasts uh, on issues related to bankruptcy, credit, and restructuring on our website, uh, which is abiworld.org. Until next time, then, this is Sam Giordano saying good day.